0: The man that raised me, essentially my dad, he is, I think, on the edge of Gen X and the generation before. He remembers situations like Kurt Cobain dying. My mom remembers famous people dying in the 70s and the 80s, and it shakes them. Nobody lives forever. Death will come for us all, and that sounds ominous, but truthful.
1: This is A Joyful Rebellion, The podcast that explores that moment you realize the life and success you worked so hard to create didn't come with all the fulfillment you thought it would. I'm your host, James Walters, and I want you to be the author of your own story. Each week I connect with people who inspire bold answers to the question, what do I do now to create a life I love? If you are ready to start answering that question for yourself, you're in the right place. So let's start a joyful rebellion. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know I like to explore topics of personal growth and living our best lives, and today is no exception. In today's episode, I'd like to challenge you to sit ever so briefly in your own discomfort as I talk with Michaeline Dowers about the one thing every living person has in common and nearly no one wants to talk about. Michaeline is a death care professional and professor who has spent the past decade educating individuals, families, and fellow professionals about the important processes involved with end-of-life planning and honoring the lives of those we care about. Be sure to stay to the end because we got into some info that took me by surprise, and I promise you're going to want to know about it. Michaelene, it's great to have you on the show. I love this topic because you help people transition into something that is the most natural part of life, but no one likes to talk about it. So that's why I wanted to talk about why is it no one likes to talk about it? And so we'll just dive right in if that's all right with you. Yeah. Describe how things started and where things are now.
0: I'll start at the beginning. Okay. I'll make a speed version of the beginning. But in the beginning, there was a college student named Michaeline Dowers who didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. She was living at home and sleeping on the couch, and her mother said, you have to do something, anything. And I said, no, we'll just stay here. She (laughs) said, I don't think so. We're not doing this. I didn't know what to do. And during my senior year of high school, we had what's called a senior project. I didn't know what to do there either. So Mm. somebody said, with your personality, why don't you try a funeral home? And they were being rather unkind about it. But I said, eh, sure, why not? There's no other ideas and nobody (laughs) else. You're
1: like, I'll show you.
0: (laughs) That's exactly what I did. So I worked in a funeral home for a year in California in the desert. I liked it. It was interesting. I learned a lot. And then I didn't go back for a couple of years. I was in college. I got a random associate's degree accidentally, which is what happens when you take so many classes that don't amount to anything.
2: Mm.
0: You get a general ed associates. That's what I did. I figured I should do something. I tried nursing. Didn't like doing that. Dropped out of that program. Tried respiratory therapy. Didn't like that. Dropped out of that program. Tried physical therapy. Also wasn't for me. Dropped out of that program. Then s- some thought came to mind, and I said, "Hey, I did this senior project a couple years back. Maybe I'll try mortuary science." So looked into a couple programs. The closest one was in Orange County, California, at Cypress College. I applied. I got accepted, and I went there. Took me quite a while to finish. I had a lot of obstacles in the way, but I did finish and met my husband while I was in that program. And we started dating, got married as soon as I finished school. And the options were either we can have a family or we can own a home. We cannot do both in California.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. So I said, okay, I want both because that's my personality. And we left. And that was the first time I ever left the state of California. I started an apprenticeship in Wisconsin, finished up there. So that was my second funeral directing license. Then he got an offer he couldn't refuse. We were going to move to Minnesota. And to be in Minnesota, you have to have a bachelor's degree to be a funeral director. Oh, So I got a bachelor's degree in religious studies. I focused on hospice and palliative care. We ended up in Indiana, which is where I'm at now. And I worked for an online provider for direct cremations. I became somewhat of an expert at that. And Then I also got an opportunity to teach. Hmm. So I teach at a mortuary college. Meanwhile, I was getting a master's degree in emergency management, focusing in mass casualty. Once that was done, I went on to get another master's degree in thanatology, which is basically death psychology, hmm. so grief studies. Okay. I don't meet families anymore, but I do have a lot of, I guess you could say, repeat customers who are interested in me helping them find the proper location in Funeral Hall. Hmm. I currently dabble in death doula, other trainings for people who want to become death doulas, death companions, people who want to know topics beyond what you could learn in an associates and bachelor's degree program.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, very specific items of information you just won't learn in school.
1: Walk me through where it went from you said, "Okay, I'm going to get an associate's degree and I'm going to work." at a funeral home, and now you're the expert in a lot more than just doing that. Was it working with the families? Was it understanding that you had skills related to helping families through these times? What was it specifically that took you to where you are now in teaching this all over the country and all over the world?
0: It was really none of those magnificent things. It just happened. Somebody suggested an idea and I said, I'll give it a try if I don't like it, what's the harm?
1: It sounds like it's interested you. It,
0: it, it has. Yeah. I really love what I do. I, I love teaching. I love getting people excited for death care and funeral service. It helps that I get paid to do it, but honestly, <laughs> if if I could live off of the interest that people have in death care and the aha moments that I spark in my students, mm. I would. I have an interest in death, dying, and bereavement. It's a part of life that nobody likes talking about, but if I could sit in a bar in Washington, D.C. and talk to an older gentleman who finds out what I do for a living in a different state while we're both out there for a different conferences, and I can encourage him to set up a prearrangement on file in the event of his death at any funeral home hmm. so that his family doesn't have to worry. And then he goes home three weeks later and emails me and says, I did what you said, and it was the best thing I did. Wow then I made a difference. And that's all I want is my students to go out and make a difference. It brings me joy. It brings me encouragement. My whole goal is to make better, brighter funeral directors and Mm. death doulas and death companions, create more people who are interested in different specialties, teach about what funeral service was and what it's going to be in the future. Death care is changing and I want to be at the forefront of that.
1: I definitely want to talk about where it's headed. And for me Personally, one of the big things in my life, especially over the last decade, and I'm sure you've heard the philosophy of Stoicism, and one of the tenets is memento mori. That is something you see everywhere. It's the whole point of remember that someday you will die. And that's not the point of it. The point of it is to remember that you're alive now. You can do things. You can make the most of it. But never forget that someday it's going to happen. And I really want to get your take on why it is that dying is probably the least surprising thing that happens to anyone, right? Sometimes it's a surprise when it happens or how, that kind of thing. But it's never a surprise that someone eventually will make it there. And I would love to know your take on why it can be so difficult for people to think about it or talk about it and really have a logical discussion about it.
0: The easy answer is we are in a death-denying society. Most Westernized cultures, they do not embrace death, dying, or bereavement. And I just lectured about this the other day. If you think about the lifespan, you're born, you grow up, you die of old age. That's traditionally what everybody wants, Mm -hmm. what everybody needs. But at some point, some people, not all, but quite a bit of people out there in the world, they're born or they're not, or they're born and then they die shortly after. Mm. Or they're born and so much happens in their life that they experience tragedy, heartbreak, trauma, and things that shorten their life. One thing I've realized is we need to honor these lives regardless of the length of time they're here. If you think back to when you were a child, did you ever go to a funeral, the funerals you went to, do you recall?
1: It's interesting you ask. I had an uncle who passed, I think I was three or four years old, and I did go to the funeral. I do not remember a thing from it, and I always ask why they didn't let me go to the funeral. And they say well, you did go to the funeral. You were there. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's strange because I remember everything leading up to the funeral. I remember everything after the fu- I don't remember the funeral at all.
0: So that right there tells me that you might have been brought to the funeral, mm-hmm. but nobody interacted with you in a way that was meaningful, that you would remember the situation mm-hmm. to plant a seed for future situations, if you will. Mm-hmm. Let's advance your age. Let's say you were eight. And you had a family member pass away and your parents don't want to upset you. So they don't take you to the funeral. Mm. What you're creating is a negative connotation to death, death, which is traditionally what westernized culture does. So you have all these children who are terrified to go to funerals. You're creating a fear of death. And now that child is going to grow up and something's going to happen in their life. Maybe they're 45 years old and their mother dies at 70. And you know what? They don't go. They do a direct cremation. They call an online cremation provider. Or they do what somebody else tells them to, which generally speaking, it's traditional in nature. It's not necessarily honoring the life of their parent Hmm. and what their parent did. It is doing a prescribed thing that was provided to them of what they are, quote, supposed to do. Let's say mom's Catholic. You go to the funeral home the funeral home knows your mom is Catholic. And they go, okay, we're going to have a visitation on Tuesday night in the chapel of the funeral home. Wednesday morning, we're going to get up. We're all going to meet at the church. We're going to have mass. Father's going to do the traditional Catholic thing. Mm. After mass, we're going to have the luncheon in the church basement by the church ladies. They're going to make the traditional meals that everybody has in our town. After the luncheon, we're all going to go upstairs, get in our vehicles, or process to the Catholic cemetery. Your mother is going to be buried in her pink rose crepe interior casket in the traditional vault. The priest is going to be there. Does this sound pretty duplicate of everything? Yes. Then mom's going to be buried and then we're all going to go home. That's it. That's all you'll get. Right. There is no follow up after that usually. And there is no traditional honoring of mom. Was mom just a Catholic woman who was born, lived and died a Catholic woman? Or were things going on in between? Was mom Mm. in the Air Force? Did mom have five children? Mm. Did mom ever rescue 12 kittens from a burning building? These are events in our life that nobody is quite acknowledging. Was mom's favorite thing to join the circus? Was she a trapeze artist in her younger years? Why are we not honoring her in her death? Why are we not having services catered to the deceased? That's the whole pretense of what a funeral should be, what our lives should be about. So you're born, what is your living? What's in between? And then you can die. Even for the youngest of people that die, I've met women who have been pregnant who have had to have procedures to end the life of their child for medical reasons, for themselves or for their children. And I know that's a really hard topic Mm -hmm. that not everybody believes in, but separate from that, it happens. We know it happens. And I sit with them as a funeral director, and they say, I want to honor the life of my child, who I will never get to hold except for in death. And I sit with them and I go, okay, why don't you tell me about Kevin, the baby who you've been pregnant with for six months who you'll never get to hold unless he is born and you get to hold him in death. Mm -hmm. What were your hopes? What were your dreams? What do you want the world to know about him? What was his room going to be like? Because you know that woman had that room decorated already. And I can craft a funeral to honor the life of this child, not just the traditional religious thing for an infant who is never going to be, but I can honor their faith or their beliefs, as well as honor the life that is or was going to be there. Mm. That's what this should be about, and I feel like that's where the fear and the move away is happening from death, dying, and bereavement. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's scary. We have manufactured fear where it shouldn't exist.
1: You painted such a picture of the typical funeral. It's almost a copy and paste kind of yes. situation, and I've seen it. I've been involved in that, and it does, now that you mention it, take a strong funeral director, someone who is used to how that should go because deaths don't exactly come up in families all the time, hopefully. And so, whenever it happens, there are emotions and there are, of course, I remember when my own mother passed and I had issues with my siblings, they didn't feel like certain things were done well enough or certain things weren't honored enough. I thought some of the verses that were read were completely inappropriate based on the situation. It's been a long time. I'm many steps away from it, but I can see how that comes up in families where you just go ahead and do what you think should be done because you don't want to step out of the box or color outside the lines. And what I'm really interested in talking about is your experience with people who know that they're at that place. They're at the end of their lives. And part of this journey with with me, with this podcast, with the Joyful Rebellion is living the best life you can live, knowing that it doesn't last forever. So I'm curious to know when you do have conversations with someone who knows they don't have very much time, how are those conversations different? And is there anything they have in common from person to person?
0: I hate to say regret, but I've met a lot of people that they come to the end of their life and they're sitting in front of me and i'm doing their pre arrangement with them and their spouse or just them and their children depending on the age and they say i worked a lot mm. but i love my family or a lot of them they say i had a lot of fun and that's what's important They take time to sit with their thoughts before they come to me. I encourage it. I tell them, be creative before you come into my office. Mm. Think about what you want. If you want to come in by yourself, that's perfectly fine. If you want to bring somebody else to help you, that's fine too. But you know that this isn't necessarily about you now that you're dying. Mm. Yes, you're going to go through the motions of the death process and then you will cease to exist on this earth. So with that, What legacy do you want to leave your children, your spouse? What do you want them to remember most about you? If it's your humor, let's put humor into your funeral. Hmm. If it's specific items, let's incorporate that into your services. They always want to be remembered. And that's very important. There's so many people out there throughout history that all they ever wanted was to do right by their family, Hmm. do right by their locale of where they are. Yeah. Even the hardest criminal you could imagine at some point wasn't that way and they wanted to do the right thing. And I'm a firm believer that there is good in everybody. When they come to me and they sit down with me, I want to craft for them something that they could be remembered by and honor their wishes so that when they're physically on their deathbed, they're comfortable with what's going on. Mm -hmm. They're aware that everything's taken care of and that there's not going to be arguments after they die. You mentioned when your mother passed, there were some disagreements, which that's very common, especially in families where it wasn't discussed beforehand. So I'm a firm believer in getting the family together, making sure that people say this is going to happen. It might be a week from now, a month from now, 20 years from now, but let's talk about it. We talk about it and get this planned. Everybody in the family will know. There's no argument. There's no discussion. Right. Because when that individual dies, that's not the time to have the discussions <laughs> right. and the arguments.
1: That's the right.
0: The time is way before.
1: And everyone spends so much time before that happens saying, oh, we don't have to worry about that right now. You're alive. You're looking great.
0: Yes. Yes. Do
1: you find that it's generational? Because as you're talking, I recall my great grandmother, Carrie, she lived, I think, close to 90, but she was, it felt like for my whole younger childhood, planning her funeral she would have, and I'm not exaggerating, she put masking tape under everything and put people's names on them of who got it when she died. Everything had a little piece of tape and I would go over there Christmas time and just look to see who was getting what. <laughs> and when it, whenever it happened, you didn't know when it was going to happen, but you knew who was getting the coffee table. It was pretty wild. But also she had her dress picked out. It was hanging in the closet and the gloves and everything that was going to go with her in the casket. It was already nailed down. And I knew that at a young age because I think my grandmother, her daughter, would joke about a little bit. Um, joking, not joking, but also I remember it being a thing. And I never heard about it being a thing after that. What have you seen in the different generations with how they approached that?
0: I think it's actually a combination of things. Let me ask first, was she alive during the Great Depression?
1: Oh, yes. She was born in 1899.
0: There you go. Yeah. So she was alive during a very hard time in American history. Every time's a hard time in American history these mm-hmm. days. But the Great Depression, this is a time where nobody had any money. If they did have money, it was very hard to hold on to it. The only mm-hmm. thing they had were their possessions that they owned outright. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were many families that lost everything but their personal possessions. They lost their homes. So if they moved into different kind of housing, all they had was that coffee table.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: But also, not just generations, but cultural differences. I have family members, they're long dead now, but they were the same way. I'm of Polish descent. The Polish people, if anybody was alive during World War II, if you remember the Jews, they left with what they could carry. And these things, they might not be of monetary value, but... These are items that this is all they have from their grandparents. Right There's family possessions that I know exist that, I mean, I might not be on the list to get them, but somebody else is mm-hmm. that I know have been around since the early 1800s in part of my family. And it's from the old country. And mm-hmm. in fleeing a war, they took the jewelry, the change, the money, the textiles, things that they could put in their pockets and carry on their backs as they ran as they changed not only their location, but their faith. Oh. I know a lot about the Catholic faith because I was raised Catholic, but why was I raised Catholic? I know my ancestry says I'm Jewish. Okay. So there's some underground things going on there during certain wars and times of our history as a world that come into play. If you really think about it, it's not just generational. It's situational. It's regional. It's financial. It's all of those things put together together. Traditional beliefs are passed on through written history, through and history. There's things I know that have just been passed down, and sometimes it's the game of telephone. Your great-grandparents might have said something to their children, and by the time it gets to your children, it's completely different.
1: Because it so, gets filtered through their mm-hmm. experience and their circumstance, right?
0: Absolutely, and all these things have an effect. Also, as history in America has gone on, death became more taboo over time. So you mentioned you, uh, a great ancestor of yours that you remember who had her items hanging there waiting for her death. Mm-hmm. Well, back at that time, I don't know what year that was, but what was the life expectancy then compared to now? People are living into their mm-hmm. 90s, 100s. My oldest client was 112 at one point. Wow. The wife that this man led was phenomenal. And what took him out wasn't old age. It was he fell. Oh. That was it. He was wow. getting his mail and he fell and broke his head oh. at 112. Wow. He could have gone on to continue living. The world that people are experiencing over the course of a century, let alone ancestry-wise over two centuries, pivotal items that people own are different now than they are back then. This Recliner, I'm sitting. This isn't going to go on to my daughter. It's a recliner I bought for $300 off
1: on the <laughs> right. internet. Yeah.
0: But something that a family member purchased for 25 cents a hundred years ago, it might not have a monetary value, but it's in the safe. Mm-hmm. And that's going to live on into perpetuity until somebody loses it or realizes that it's really just a trinket. Right. The knowledge that somebody a long time ago, where we might have a photo of them and just a little blip, a dot mm-hmm. about life. They lived, there was a war, they died, and they took this one small tangible item with them is enough to spark interest, memories, conversations. I can have conversations with people in my family who don't remember World War II, but remember hearing from their grandparents Mm -hmm. about World War II. And unfortunately, at least in my situation, those generations, they're gone before they're 70. So a lot of us are running out of time to have these conversations. I've sat down and had conversations with the older generations in my family, and they don't want to talk about it. Mm. But older generation for my family is born in the 50s. Think about the baby boomer generation. They don't have these conversations. No. They're going to live forever.
1: I, I think that was one of the things that either they were told or they wanted to believe.
0: Exactly. And that's obviously not the case. Nobody lives forever. Death will come for us all. And that sounds ominous, but truthful. The man that raised me essentially my dad he is i think on the edge of gen x and the generation before he was born in 1969 okay he remembers situations like kurt cobain dying i grew up on the west coast so he was of that scene right my mom remembers famous people dying in the 70s and the 80s and it shakes them it makes them think even if for a brief moment that oh i'm not immortal Mm-hmm. We're not immortal. The things I'm doing are going to affect me. One day I'll have fun now. And if I make it, then I'll calm down later. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, the generation now, not my generation, but the next one, whatever they call Z. The one Z. Z. Is that what they are? Yeah. The generation Z, they're now faced with more death than I was. Mm. My first, I want say large frame of reference for death was 9-11.
1: Mm. Okay,
0: I was a freshman in high school when that happened, and I I remember it. But now we have people who are adults who weren't alive during 9-11, but they've still experienced the same kind of collective grief that I experienced at that time. But on a, I don't want to say a larger level than 9-11, but on a more constant level, they've been to high school during COVID. They've been in a war that's essentially spanned 20 years They've seen Russia invade at least two countries at this point. They've seen battles on the border, all sorts of things happen that have been really horrible to experience. And it doesn't spark hope in them, unfortunately. It sparks mm. this new age change where they feel that, yeah, we should be having these talks about death. Technology can keep us alive, but should it?
1: Mm. That's
0: another common topic lately. Okay. Okay. Not only the technology keeping us alive, and maybe it should or shouldn't, but what can we do to better the experience of death? We now have states passing psychedelic laws where you can have psychedelics for grief therapy, for end-of-life care. We have retreats for people to go on to experience the psychedelic to help expand their mind, not just for fun, but to help deal with collective trauma that they might have experienced, to help them become more centered with what's going on in the world and to get over, I hate to call it this, but that hump that they're in hmm. that they've basically been in for, what, five years now. We as a, a world have been in this rut. Yeah, I hate to be a downer and say there's <laughs> nothing really good going on because there is, but it's almost like you get over one thing, you get over the COVID and now there's something else mm-hmm. the housing crisis, a war. There's things going on everywhere right now. And they have so much pressure. Yeah. The world is so vastly different now for them as it was for my parents. And unfortunately, people of my generation are in the middle and we're trying to assist both newer generation is coming in and modifying death care. And I love it.
1: So, what is different? What's coming up? Because when I was growing up, if you died, you went to the funeral home and then they buried you in a cemetery. And I always wondered, I thought, what happens when we run out of land for that? I know that happened in Europe and then they figured things out, but I think it was my grandfather was the first I'd ever experienced. And I was almost in my 30s by then, who got cremated. So like where I lived in the South, nobody got cremated. It wasn't a thing until that happened. Then it seems like everyone who's died since in my family has been cremated.
0: To answer the question on running out of room, that's actually a two-part answer. So first of all, cremation rates are on the rise exponentially. I think California has the highest cremation rate. Last I checked, I might be wrong, but they're well over like 85% at this rate. Hmm. The one state with the lowest cremation rate from a few years ago, was Mississippi, Mm -hmm. and they were still over 50%. So, cremation rate is rising. There are still going to be traditional burials running out of space. They have started doing, instead of horizontal burials, they're doing vertical burials. Okay. Um, I think New York has them also building up in mausoleums instead of down into the ground. Mm. There's ground niches, so they dig down as far as they can. And they set up ways to go down with multiple individuals in a family plot. There's new creative ways of doing green burial. There's composting. There's water cremation. There's burial at sea. I mean, there's so many different things that are new and innovative that we're learning about that they're making legal. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, if you look at how people used to live, even back in the 50s, everybody was born. They lived in one town. Maybe they moved once mm-hmm. or twice in their whole lives. In the last 10 years, I have lived in four states. <laughs> Traditionally speaking, we are a transient society these days. People are moving out of more expensive areas into more affordable areas, much like I did. The world is changing so much that you move where the job is. You mm-hmm. need to work to live. And we're a two-income household, like many households. And because of that, you have to go with what's best option. And what that means is you move. Mm-hmm. Why am I going to bury my spouse in a cemetery where his family used to or does live or did live in Washington when I'm in Indiana, if I'm even in Indiana, by the time that happens, right. nobody's going to visit. People are not really visiting cemeteries as much. hmm My mother, she's alive, she's not old at all, but her first child is buried in California. Hmm. My mom lives there part-time. But what happens when either my mom dies or she moves, which she's doing next year? Nobody's going to visit that child, or she will, once a year, somebody will do upkeep with Mm -hmm. the property where the child is buried. So being a transient society, a lot of people feel more connected to take their loved one with them in the form of cremated remains or water cremation remains, or human composting, turning somebody into dirt. You can take the plant with you. Mm. This is a mom ficus. I don't know. (laughs) But turning people into keepsakes is also something that people find important. Even just putting them in an urn and taking them with you. Mm -hmm. We do it with our pets. There's really no reason not to do it with people. Mm -hmm. And it helps the grief process. If you have mom or dad on a shelf above your fireplace, and they're sealed, and you know that they're there, nobody's going to desecrate their grave. You know nothing bad's going to happen at the cemetery. You know exactly who is in there, exactly what is going on, because it's in your house. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of people think. And traditionally speaking, and this is something that comes up, is when I die, what happens to my cremated remains? My daughter will have them, I'm sure. But then a hundred years from now, what happens to my cremated remains when she's gone mm-hmm. or when her children are gone? Are we just passing our ancestors on throughout time? I don't know. Not necessarily so. I guess it is. Are you connected to the cremated remains or the dead body in the ground? Or is the connection more what's inside of your heart, in mm-hmm. your mind? Yeah. Do you have to go to the ground or the shelf to commemorate them, to love them, to remember them, to speak to them? Or is that something I can do right here? In my home lounge with my cup of coffee and my fireplace while looking at the trees outside. Yeah. Why are we connected to the body? We don't need to be. There's really no reason. I mean, we'll run out of space eventually, but I think that's going to be quite a while. Is it going to be great space that we're left with towards the end? Probably not. (laughs) No. Because everybody wants to buy up the really nice plots under the nice trees Mm -hmm. on the lakes. But there are so many cemeteries out there that have plenty of open space. Even the historic cemeteries out there that have been around for hundreds of years, if you have a family member in them and you think, hey, I might want to be buried here, even if I'm cremated, I want to be around my ancestors, you can still do that. Many Hmm. of your townships will allow you to do that. Hmm.
1: I would love for you to talk a little bit about the company you started. Absolutely. What was the impetus for that? And what is it that you're trying to change or evolve In the process,
0: the company I started is called Quietest Bee. It was built on the pretense that there's a tradition of where people go and they do what's called a telling of the bees. If a major event in life happens, they go and they tell the bees, Bob died. Mm. And they're supposed to go tell the hive, and it goes and gets spread out all over the world. It's also under the idea that the hive is one entity, it's a hive mind, they all work together. They all do one thing. So what I'm doing is I'm training others. They're going out and they're training others. There's also another theory that there is what's called an undertaker bee. This one particular bee's mission in its whole life is to remove dead bees from the hive. Because it's not safe to have them there. They'll decompose. They'll attract predators. Mm -hmm. So their whole mission is to work their little bee bodies to the core to get this one dead bee out for the sake of the rest of them. So it's a combination of all of those things. I've started this company to train others. So what you learn in an associates of science, mortuary science, is to help people in their time of need. We're going to bury or cremate a body. We're going to help families and serve them well. We will learn about the grief process as a whole. When you go on to a bachelor's degree program, which is what I teach at one of the colleges, You already know how to do all the work as a funeral director, but you learn about the next stages. How do we deal with grief? How do we help those who are going through complex grief situations? We might learn about death in the lives of children. What is their children is zero to 18. Mm. We might learn about special cases like suicide. We might learn about grief and bereavement in the older community. We might learn about hospice and palliative care what the goal of my company is is to take it one step further there's really no classes out there to show funeral directors death in the lives of children who have experienced a mass shooting at their elementary school
1: mm, okay
0: how do you do this how do you deal with a situation where six sets of parents walk into your firm mm. and say our child has died what do we do and how do you the funeral director cope with that because mm. I don't care what anybody says. All funeral directors, we just want to do what's best for the families. We care, and we take on a lot of the trauma that is out there. We see the worst of the worst. We see the best of the best. But a lot of visuals we get are not great things that people need to see or want to see.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And because of that, we need to learn how to cope, and we don't. Mm. Uh, Collectively, funeral service as a whole, we don't cry in front of the families. It's not our grief what we do is we push it down. We don't always get to go home and talk to our spouses about that. They don't want to hear it. We don't want to traumatize them. So hmm. we push it down. Wow.
1: and thought it's, about that.
0: It's something to know that, I hate to say it, but we're looked at as the creepy person nobody wants to talk to. Mm-hmm. But in the event of a tragedy, we're who people run to because you have to. We are the unwanted requirement. Right.
1: It's a tough place it to is, be.
0: And the point of my company is to train funeral directors to learn how to cope with themselves, with what they're dealing with in their situations. So these classes, yes, I'm going to teach them how to deal with the families and what the families are experiencing in their very specific kind of grief.
1: Yeah, that's important work you're doing because the more you can help them, the more they can help others. You got me thinking now, is that job pretty high burnout?
0: Yes. Traditionally speaking, our burnout rate is seven years. whoa. Okay. There's a couple factors. Some of it is the trauma. If you're in an area that doesn't see a lot of trauma, rural America, you might get a tractor accident every so often or a horse accident or a car accident. But you're not seeing inner city situations like shootings, murders, Mm -hmm. things like that. Each region has their own norm. Unfortunately, um, some areas are worse than others. But the burnout rate, regardless, is still pretty high. Some of it has to do with pay. If you're not a funeral home owner, depending on the firm you work for, you're not getting the best of pay for the time and effort you're spending. For the first, I'd say, five years of my career, maybe six years of my career, I didn't make more than $20 an hour. And I didn't have Christmas. I didn't have Thanksgiving. I didn't have Easter with my families. Why?
2: Oh, wow. Because
0: death does not care what holiday it is. Right. If grandma dies in the middle of Easter brunch in the kitchen with everybody there, I have to go get her right there. It doesn't matter if I'm about to sit down for my ham. I have to go get grandma off of her floor for the family. And I do it. Mm. Absolutely. I do it with my whole soul because I know that's what they need. Mm -hmm. So a lot of funeral directors, they sacrifice themselves, their family to go assist Other families who are in need in their time of loss. So no wonder our burnout rate is so astronomical. Yeah, The divorce rate for a lot is through the roof.
1: I can imagine. You talked earlier about the concept of the death doula. It sounds like it's somewhere between hospice and a little more for the mental transition than the physical transition.
0: A little bit. So what the the death doula is, they're not a funeral director. They're not necessarily even a death care professional. They are somebody who takes a little bit of training, who feels called to assist people in their final stages of life. So somebody might still have hospice for the medical aspect of things going on. Mm -hmm. But think about somebody dying at home with their family present. The family is taxed. They're very tired. Dying is not for the weak. Let me put it to you that way. Yeah. There's plenty of people where... It's going to take a lot of effort to care for their loved one. They still have to go to work every day to make sure that they have money for the rest of the family. But then when they come home, they're dealing with their mom, their dad, their grandma, their grandpa, whoever is in that bed in the living room, Mm -hmm. dying. Death companions and death doulas, they come in, they sit with the individual, they talk with them. They become a bridge between the dying and the family, a better bridge between the dying and the medical staff or the clergy persons that are around, if any. They talk to them about their hopes, their dreams, they express ideas. Let's say somebody's on their deathbed and the hospice nurse shows up while the individual is sleeping. Is the individual going to be able to tell them, I'm in pain, this is what happened earlier, Mm. not necessarily. So the death companion is there to say, they're sleeping, let's let them rest. But what happened earlier was, and fill in the blank. So they're more of an addition to, as opposed to an alternative to.
1: Okay. So
0: it's more of a comprehensive care. Also, they are not funeral directors. They are not licensed to be funeral directors. A lot of funeral directors are starting to become death doulas to assist, Mm -hmm. to educate. There's legal things going on in certain states. One of them is California and one of them is Indiana where certain death doulas um, are getting in some trouble because they're holding themselves out as death care professionals as if they had gone to school and they're giving funeral advice, which is not legal. No, I think there's a fine line to be walked in these situations and I think there's value in what death doulas are doing and death companions are doing. Mm-hmm. We even have death doulas for pregnant women who are going to experience a loss and know they're going to experience a loss. They help be the mediator For when that woman goes into the hospital to give birth to a child that they'll never get to hold. They come in prepared with everything that a person could possibly need to facilitate what would be considered good grief. They set the tone. They might do aftercare to check in to provide resources for different people and options in their local community to seek further help if necessary.
1: It sounds like that's one of those areas where things are actually evolving and progressing.
0: Yes, they are. There are trainings out there that I don't necessarily want to subscribe to because they're quick, become a death doula in one weekend. And there's much more to it than that. One of the schools I teach at does death companioning, death doulaship. I teach some of those classes already. There are longer programs that are way more in-depth on what should be done, what could be done, what needs to be done. And there's programs that are very state-specific as well. Great things are being done. However, there's that age old saying the road to hell is led with good intentions sometimes. And unfortunately, that happens to a lot of aspiring death doulas and death companions. They want to help. They don't know how and they just don't have the information out there to find the good resources needed to Hmm. make a positive effect on the end of life situations that people are dealing with.
1: It's been so eye opening having this conversation. The reason I wanted to talk with you is because it's conversation a lot of people are so hesitant to have. And I really wanted to get your perspective on it. And I would love to know, based on your experience, based on what you've seen with so many families, if someone is hearing this and thinking, okay, I need to get my act together. Like you had that conversation with the person, did you say it was in the airport?
0: It was in a bar.
1: Okay. So you had a conversation with the the gentleman in the bar and... You gave him some advice, he went and acted on it, and now his mind is at ease, his family isn't going to have to jump through a lot of hoops, they know what's going to happen. What advice would you give someone who is thinking, oh, I never thought about that, maybe I should have that conversation, at least with myself, if no one else?
0: Get your wishes on paper, get them signed or notarized by somebody. If you have a lawyer, draw up these documents, get them done with the lawyer. If you ever prefer a funeral home, go talk to that funeral home. See what documents they will need so that you need to make your own decisions for your end of life and death care. Even if you don't fully fund a funeral, make sure that your stuff is on file somewhere, anywhere, just so your family has some guidance. Talk. Open up the conversation. Sit down with your loved ones, the people that are the closest to you. They don't even have to be blood relatives. Tell them what you're wanting. And if it changes later on down the road, that's okay. Tell them. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, I don't want to be cremated anymore. I've changed. I now want to be buried. Great. Get it on paper. Get it done so that no questions come up later. For those individuals who might not have a good relationship with their blood relations, their next of kin, or who don't have a next of kin, pick your closest friend, somebody you trust. Pick them. Make them the one that makes the decision. To do this, you need to make sure you fill out proper documents. Just get it done. Even if you don't have any final decisions made just yet, sit down. Have some thought gain some knowledge.
1: That's good advice because a lot of people think about their stuff. Who's going to get my stuff? And so they go create a will or they might have, what is it? The living...
0: The power of attorney. The power of attorney
1: and the living will, that kind of thing, if they get incapacitated. But so many people, I guess I'm one of them who have maybe thought about it, but never to the extent of doing something about it. So that's great advice.
0: The idea of a will or a living will or a durable power of attorney for healthcare is also different for each state. In the state of Washington, I have clients all the time who say, my mom died. I have her power of attorney. Most, I'd say about 95% of the power of attorneys in the state of Washington end at death. You are responsible for your person. Up until they die. Once they die, it goes to their legal next of kin Mm. who makes all the arrangements. And if that traditional legal next of kin was on bad terms with the now deceased, we have a problem Mm. because if they want to be spiteful in any kind of way and the individual who died never wanted to be cremated, guess who might be getting cremated now? Oh, So I encourage people to visit a funeral home and ask them, what kind of document do you need or does a funeral home in this state need to make sure that my designated person in my durable power of attorney for healthcare makes the decisions? Lawyers don't always know. Lawyers have a traditional form. That traditional form, nine times out of 10, says it ends at death. And then we unfortunately have to go with the next of kin. This is very important for communities such as the LGBTQ community, where they might have a chosen family and not a biological family. I've seen time and time again, people of that community have passed away and their friends are saying they're transgender. They live as a woman. They're a woman. They've been a woman for 20 years. And unfortunately, the family comes in and says, no, we're cutting the hair. That's a man. That is so painful to watch. Mm. So traumatic to the friends of the deceased for them to see. I cannot encourage people any harder to get documents done and done correctly so that there's no issues.
1: Wow, who would have thought of that if you hadn't lived through it like you have? So thank you for that. I really appreciate this conversation. It's given me a lot to think about and certainly given perspective, that's what this podcast is about is perspective and getting perspective on the end of life will hopefully help some folks go out there and make the one they've got right here, right now, the absolute Absolutely. best it can be. And I so appreciate just your honesty and your straightforward with what you just shared with us and opening our minds to what's coming up.
0: Absolutely. It's coming for everybody.
1: But it Wait. doesn't have to be morbid. It's yeah. just, it's so natural. And that's how we started the conversation. It's a natural thing. Uh, a lot of people try to make it morbid. doesn't have to be. It's not an uplifting thought for sure, but at the same time, it doesn't have to bring us down.
0: Not at all. Have the talks about death early with children. I know that sounds strange, but my daughter, she's four. She told my mom, one of my mom's fish died while she was at grandma's house. And mm. she told grandma, put some batteries in him. He'll come back.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So my mom had to have the conversation that when things die, they don't come back after death. And I'm funeral director. me is being, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Right. Use your words wisely, especially around children. Think about. Your cell phone. My cell phone died. Or the blender died. Or the car died. Yeah. we need to have more of a reverence for death. Pay more attention to the words coming out of our mouths and how we talk around children and how we talk around others to make death less of a taboo topic and more of an important topic to discuss and in appropriate ways. There's so many resources out there for families who want to and should talk to their children about death Mm. as early as you like honestly as early as appropriate for that child
1: that's even more to think about now (laughs) thank (laughs) you so much i really appreciate your time today and i am looking forward to getting this out and getting some feedback from everyone who's listening
0: absolutely glad to be here thank you
1: and i wish you all the best of success with the quietest bee thank you thank you so much for joining me today and be sure to come back next week Oh, and can I ask a favor? I love connecting with people who have either led their own Joyful Rebellion or professionals who help others through that journey. So if you know someone like that, there's a big yellow button on the homepage at ajoyfulrebellion.com. I'd really appreciate you reaching out with a suggestion or introduction. Thanks again, and I'll see you back here next week.